Hi everyone, welcome back to episode three of Casual Watch Talk. This is my podcast that is linked to my Casual Watch Review YouTube channel. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Uh, I've done two previous podcasts, one where we looked at the Amiga Apollo 11, and then a second one where we talked about how or where's the best place to buy watches on the internet with a good friend of mine, Steve. We talked about forums, etc. Now, in this week's episode, I'm joined by a good friend to the channel, Todd, who's a longtime watch collector, but he has uh, an affinity for vintage Seikos, and in particular, vintage Seiko chronographs. Now, if you're thinking that you know nothing about Seiko chronographs, I'm in that boat as well. I know next to nothing about them, so hopefully this will be extremely interesting for for both of us to listen to. So, Todd, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the show today. Thank you, Sam, for having me. Uh, it's very exciting. A question I always love to start with is, tell us a bit about how you kind of got into watches. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, well, uh, like you, I'm an engineer. And uh, I used to take apart my dad's old Timex. It's back when, you know, the Timex made the little automatics and they'd stop working and I'd take them apart. And of course, that's about all I'd achieve. But they always fascinated me, uh, just the intricacy and, and how they worked. And, and then um, growing up, I was a, uh, a boater head. And when I got into my teens and I, my buddies and I used to buy you know, old cars, we'd fix them up. We'd race them. Uh, we do, uh, you know, on track days. I grew up around Atlanta, so we used to do track days at Road Atlanta. And uh, we used to work on 914s, which uh, one of my favorite automobiles of all time. And used to be able to buy them fairly inexpensively. And that's not so true anymore, like so many, like Seiko chronographs. But uh, it just fascinated me, too, the, the linkage between, uh, you know, chronographs, racing chronographs and motorsports. And it's like your picture on your uh, casual watch reviewer YouTube channel, you have a picture of Steve McQueen uh, with his tag uh, Hoyer uh, Monaco. And I remember I, I would bump into famous race car drivers. I, I bumped into Paul Newman back when he was racing for Newman Haas in his own, you know, his own racing outfit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was just a regular guy at the track. And uh, there were many others like that. Kind of had this association with some of these elites, you know, movie star racers or just, you know, Mario Andretti, you know, these sorts of guys, uh, you, you occasionally see them and, and uh, they'd always have these great watches. And so I got ever more intrigued with it. And um, in fact, when I was, when I was racing, I, I was going to college and I, I did something I shouldn't have done. And I bought my first uh, new watch, which was a Seiko chronograph. It was the first, uh, second year of their, um, their quartz chronographs that they released in, uh, they started them in 1983. I have the 1984 one and I still own it. And uh, it's just fascinating uh, just, you know, how these work and the peel is, I guess, stirs up all that uh, cool testosterone the same way uh, racing cars do. So anyhow, that's uh, kind of, kind of how I, I got into it. And uh, as I've gotten older, I've been able to kind of, pay attention to it a little bit more and i've been uh, concentrating more on uh on seiko vintage seiko chronographs i have other chronographs too uh hamilton and omega and such but uh, uh the seiko chronographs are really special to me i know seiko had so many firsts that they did in the watch industry i was wondering whether the chronograph was was a technology that they advanced 
Yeah, absolutely. If we want to go back to, you know, they had some of the first chronograph they ever did was a mono pusher for the Tokyo Olympics, and I believe it was 1964, but I'm not exactly certain of the date. But those are, you know, very, very difficult to get a hold of. And then they uh, further uh, developed, uh, you know, these chronographs. And these were um, manual line chronographs. But the thing, the chronograph they're probably best known for, at least with vintage Seiko folks, is the what is often called the Pogue, which is a nickname for the uh, 6139 series of chronographs, which debuted uh, in, for the most part, in 1969. Although uh, we do know now, because of investigations and people paying attention, that they, Seiko meaning, might have developed the first automatic chronograph period. They might have actually produced, uh, we know they were the first to ma mass market the automatic chronograph, because we have um, dates of, uh, uh, it came out in early of, uh, early 1969. But there's some other uh picture evidence now and, and, and some other records that perhaps they actually started these uh, in Japan in 1968. So they would have beaten both El Primero, uh, the Zenith group, as well as the Caliber 11 uh, a consortium uh, of uh, various watch manufacturers, Hamilton, Buren. Uh, it was, um, I'm just drawing a blank on, on some of the other ones, the big guys, you know, that were working on, on the chronograph yep. at the time. Tag, uh, sorry, Hewer and others. And uh, they may have uh, come out with the world's first, uh, period, world's first uh, automatic chronograph. And, and when they did, they, they did it with a vertical clutch. They did it with a column wheel movement. It's very sophisticated, uh, high technology at the time. So it's very impressive. And then my watch, which is 1984 quartz chronograph, uh, Seiko also invented the first, world's first analog quartz chronograph. And this is a, uh, uh, I believe it's around 15 joules. It's all metal. Uh, it's the 7A, mine's a 7A38, uh, which is the movement uh, designator. And it, these are really amazing. These are watches that were made to last a lifetime. And uh, mine even survived a house fire. And Spencer Klein, one of the renowned Seiko restorers, restored it for me. And I'm holding it right now, and it, it, it works beautifully lots of stuff like that seiko was was doing first so when you you talk about a mono pushing chronograph just to clarify here is this how we would think of a modern sort of mechanical chronograph where it adds sub dials or is it a different configuration where the second hand of the watch does it look like an ordinary analog watch well the mono pusher one they did was uh, so we normally associate chronographs with uh, they have two pushers right you have the start and stop basically um, but what Seiko did back in yes, 1964, it was the caliber 5719, and you're right, there were no subdials. It just had the, what would you normally associate the second hand, the large second hand, was your chronograph second hand, and you had to keep track of how many times that went around. You know, every 60 seconds, you'd have to keep track of the minute, and they had an outside uh, dial, like a dive watch. I believe it was articulating, so you could actually move and keep track of it. In 1970, the Danish Seiko group, which is uh, Seiko, was divided into two different groups, Asua and, and Danny group. And the Danny group came up with their 7017 chronograph, which also didn't have subdials. It had two uh, two uh, actuator buttons on the right, the same as uh, what we think all chronographs usually have. But uh, it was actually the world's world record thinnest uh, chronograph movement. 
Uh, and it was an automatic. They set that world record at the time. So again, this is another first for Seiko. It's fascinating. And those chronographs are, are, are just incredible. I have one. It's currently being, um, it is, there was a problem with one of the gears in it after it was restored down at Vintage Time Australia. And the gentleman there, Adrian Selleck, is, has it. And he had to go and find and dig up some, <laughs> some uh, new old stock parts to replace a, 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 um, a chronograph wheel in it for me. Uh, but that'll be coming back to me soon. But these are big, they're beautiful chronographs. They're a true flyback chronograph. So while it's running, you could push the lower right button and it would, it would fly back to zero and then you'd let go and it would resume timing again. Uh, so Seiko has a, a, a really interesting combination of uh, first and technologies that uh, all came around, let's say the 64 to uh, 70 time frame. They don't make a mechanical chronograph anymore, is my understanding. Is it just that quartz became so cheap? I think that's exactly like so many other manufacturers. It's odd that, you know, that Seiko pioneered the quartz movement. They weren't the first to, to come up with it necessarily. It was actually, I think, believe, originally developed way back in the 30s, but no one knew, you know, how to do anything with it. But uh, with the 6139 series of movements, like what is known as the Pogue, uh, so if we go from let's say let's say 68 ish 69 the the production ended around 1978 I believe uh, so almost 10 years and after that uh, because of the quartz revolution Seiko to my knowledge didn't make any chronographs until they came up again uh, with the one I mentioned which is the you know 7A series of chronographs back in 1983 so. Between those two dates, uh, what is that about? Let's say five years or, or so. They did not um, didn't make any. That's amazing. So the vintage mechanical chronographs that you collect in were really within like a ten minute, uh, sorry, ten year band. Of yes, exactly, exactly. And the and the Seiko uh, the Seiko folks that really chase the different versions of the chronograph are really only chasing, um, let's say the 60, again, the 60, uh, uh, 6139s, uh, chase those through those 10 years. And there's different versions through those 10 years in different uh, sub uh, markets like the uh, Japanese domestic market or the JDM versions. And they have um, maybe different text on the dial. And so they're chasing after or different dial colors, too. So it's those variations that are very popular with the Seiko chronograph collectors. Ten years is like a, a blink of the eye for, for, a, for the watch industry, isn't it, really? When I think of Seiko chronographs, uh, the first thing I think is about the, the Pogue, obviously. Is that the most famous, you would say, of the vintage models of Seiko? Was there others that were pioneers? And if anybody's not uh, familiar with the Pogue, I'm sure Todd will get into the story, but it was one of the first Seikos uh, into space. Oh, right. It was the world's first automatic chronograph in space. It was uh, Colonel William Pogue, which is it's kind of named after, brought a gold dial his personal gold dial, uh, Seiko watch, he bought it a PX. And it's the one uh, that's around 1971 or so. It performed flawlessly. NASA never thought an automatic would necessarily work well in space. Now, he didn't do it on any EVAs, but, you know, he never used it outside of the space station, the Skylab. Uh, he had it on this wrist. He had it on one wrist, and he had uh, his Omega Speedmaster on the other wrist. And there's lots of pictures of him in Skylab with that. 
because he got used to using uh, his Seiko speed timer, the gold dialed one. Uh, during training sessions in the simulators, he used it to time engine burns. And so he got used to using it because the Seiko speed timer also has an internal bezel that's, uh, that's articulated through the crown. So you can, you can um, spin it you know, back and forth. And, and this was very handy for him. And it worked out beautifully. So when it was discovered sometime later that that watch actually was the first uh, automatic chronograph in space, uh, it became very famous as a result. And it was actually auctioned off uh, to help uh, a charity that uh, Colonel Pokes supported. I forgot exactly when the date was. It was, I believe it was in the 90s and it went for about $6,000 or so. I can't imagine what that watch is worth today if it were to show up. Uh, its whereabouts are unknown. The actual Pogue Pogue, we don't know where it is. But uh, that would be fascinating. But the Pogue, like you said, the 6139, is by far, I think, the most uh, famous and probably the most uh, collectible of the uh, Seiko chronographs. I mean, I've always loved the look of the vintage Seiko chronographs, but one of the things that I know about them is that they're they can be quite tricky. You really seem to have to know what you're you're doing to find a, a decent example. And also, I know restoring them can be tricky. Is, is that a reality? Oh, it is a reality. <laughs> I'll give you two recent examples. Um, uh, and, and it's true. What's nice, though, is that there's so much enthusiasm for uh, these chronographs that there's a number of restorers that specialize in, in these. So you wouldn't want to take your Seiko 6139, your 6138, your 7017 to just your your down the street watch, um, you know, uh, watch repairers or such, unless they have experience in it because they're different. And uh, in order to do it right, you need somebody who's very experienced because of the intricacies in these chronographs, their uh, tight tolerances, the spring tensions uh, in some of the movements are very, uh, very important to set them properly. And there's lots of nuances the same way you wouldn't want to go for heart surgery by your, uh, you know, your family doctor. You want to go to a specialist that's done a thousand heart, you know, different types of heart surgeries. And so the trick is first to get a find one, find a uh, reputable Seiko uh, restorer who does the chronographs. And I use three different ones uh, to help me out. Uh, and you can go to the forums like the, uh, like the Seiko citizen, citizen watch forum, for example, there's a number of, of folks there with excellent reputations. Uh, currently, I'm using a gentleman named Simon Wilkinson, who's just a, a he has a regular nine to five job, but he does this on the weekends. And he's got one of mine now. And to your point, I bought a 1970 blue dial Pogue or a 6139, uh, but it has a proof marking on the dial. Now, the proof ones were the very first ones back uh, when watches used to be able to say they were waterproof before the truth and advertising laws came into effect in the United States. So we didn't have many proof dials. They were only around for about a year. And I bought one off, uh, off of an estate sales uh, online, and it needed a lot of help. And when uh, Simon got a hold of it, he found rusted parts. He found pieces that needed to be replaced uh, more than the usual things. Usually, usually you replace crystals and gaskets and do that sort of thing, and then you rebuild movements. But this needed a new jewel. It was missing um, the balance wheel jewel, the dia shock jewel, uh, you know, strange stuff like that. And so he, but he could source all these. And um, right now he still has it because the the chronograph second hand, you know, the big second hand, is slightly bent. 
Uh, he wants to try to straighten it, but there's a chance it could break. So he was able to locate new old stock two-piece, which is the early version of these second hands that would go on a proof model. And so if he breaks it this weekend, we're going to put the new old stock that he found on it. See what I'm saying? It's, it's very intricate. Now, to get to your other point, I also recently purchased a 6138. Now, the 6138s are actually later. They came out later, even though the number is one less than the 6139, because the movements were so complex that Seiko didn't want to release them yet. And so they came in after the 6139s. And these are the panda dials. So these are the ones that have two sub-dials that Seiko makes. Uh, made you know uh, back in the in the late 60s. These actually came out in, in 1970, roughly in Japan, and uh, so they have a second dial subdial which allows you to keep track of not just the minutes but you keep track of hours. So you can go up to 12 hours on these. And uh, one of the most popular ones are the bullheads. And you and I have talked about bullheads before. Yeah. So anyhow, I found through a guy I know in Cyprus. He bought one off the original owner who bought it in 1973 in Qatar or Qatar, depending on how you pronounce the country. And he had it serviced three times over his lifetime. He's 80 some odd years old now. And he decided he was selling off some of his things. My friend bought it and sold it to me. We all look, it looked original, but when I sent it, it was running a little erratically and I wanted to have it checked out to see if it needed to be serviced. I sent it to Simon and he had to pull the dial off, and it was an aftermarket dial. Sometime during when this gentleman had his watch serviced, the servicing company switched the dials. Wow. And so I thought I was buying an all-original, and an all-original blue bullhead is an, kind of an expensive watch. They can go $1,000 or more uh, if they're in really good shape, uh, and now it's not. So I'm like, oh, no. So I had to call him up and or you know, FaceTime them or whatever. And I said, look what's happened. And he was really devastated. Uh, he's, and so he took it back and refunded my money. And, um, you know, he doesn't know what he's going to do with it now exactly. So the point is that it's really hard and you need help a lot of times to uh, make sure you get something that's original. Because that, if that's what you think you're paying for, if you can buy ones without original dials. And if you're happy with that, that's fine. But just keep in mind that the watch is worth half what it would be if it were original. And if that's all you're paying for, then that's okay. But a lot of times these watches are coming out of other certain countries uh, that are notorious for producing these Frankens where they, 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 they kind of sneak them in and they, they say they're original and they're not. And so the key is uh, just to learn all you can about them and be able to spot the fakes. Yeah. I think that market for, bullhead chronographs i mean we've talked about this is probably going to go insane over the next six months because of the citizen that's featured in the new tarantino film and i know that those watches are notorious franken watches those citizens i don't know whether i think i don't know whether i've even ever seen a real one for for sale certainly on ebay if you see like sort of philippines or india on there so i i think a lot of people need to be careful i think there's going to be a lot of uninformed watch buyers who just love the look because it's a great looking watch who just love love the look of it and they're out and the originals the original uh, citizen bullheads are out there i'm not a citizen expert by any stretch they have their own set of issues um, the main thing is that uh, i believe all the cases are base metal cases so all the seikos are, are stainless 316l you know type stainless but the uh, citizen bullheads are base metal that are plated and so 
you see that with old chronic Swiss chronographs too, uh, yeah. from, from the day, you know, the sixties and early seventies. And so, you know, the cases start to deteriorate and you have problems like that. So that's a whole nother issue, but yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it, it, it's, can be frightening, but you just need to do a lot of homework and, and, and rely on folks to help you out to make sure you don't uh, make a mistake. But I'm just, you know, I, I like to believe I know what I'm doing a lot of the times and I still got, uh, both my friend who's an, who's a Seiko collector in Cyprus and myself, we got fooled. So a two-part question now. First one is, is there a, a vintage Seiko chronograph that you think is underrated at the moment? If I was a new collector, do you think there's one that's just probably below what it's worth that you think might be a, a future classic? So if I wanted to get into uh, like a, a vintage Seiko chronograph, and maybe not spend as much money. So if you're chasing gold pogues, you're going to, even bad ones, uh, I tell you, the prices just have been, keep, keep going up and up and up. Uh, you're going to spend a fair amount of money and you're going to risk uh, too, you're not careful and know what you're doing. You could get a uh, aftermarket dial and that sort of thing. So I would say the best buy right now uh, in the 6139s, and that would be the best way to go because the 6138, uh, pandas, regardless if they're bullhead or a, or a regular panda dial or a kakume or what have you, are still going to be expensive, more so than the um, the sixty was. So what they they call them, they these are sixty one thirty nines without the tacky ring on the outside. These are the one I have. I'm holding in my hand is sixty one thirty nine dash six zero one five. So it's important to know that with Seiko, what they do is they they in the first in their numbering schema they use the movement first so it's a 6139 and then there's a dash and then there's a model designator this is a 6015 which means it's a blue dial probably north american blue dial watch these are stunning the seiko was on top of their game in the 1970s uh, especially with dials and this dial just pops it sings it reflects beautifully and uh, these are not as collectors aren't as passionate about them and i saw one recently which was an older one than i have mine is from 1973 it's from march of 1973 when seiko serial numbers the first digit is the last year of the year it was made uh the last digit of the year it was made so you don't know the decade exactly but with these watches we know when they were made so we can that's not a mystery so mine has three three is the first two numbers which means it was uh made in march of 1973 and uh, uh, this one actually was on one of the forums, and it was a resist dial one. It was made in 1970, and it, it needed to be overhauled, but the, the guy was selling it for $199. Very reasonable. Uh, and you'd think you might, if there's not a major problem with it, you're spending eh, $300 or so to have it rebuilt with a new crystal. So let's say everything goes well, and you get done with $500, and you've got a watch that's... Uh, you know, maybe you have it rejeweled, the two jewel problems they have with these, and hey, you have jewels put in, and now the watch will last another 50 years. So that's probably the best way to go is one of these, uh, like a 6015 uh, watch. The second part of the question is, what would you suggest to a new collector, like places to buy or forums where you can get kind of more information? Yeah, I would suggest uh, you subscribe to the forums, and there's a there's Wrist Sushi. Uh, there's the, like I mentioned before, the Seiko Citizen Watch Forum. There's other forums. The one I pay attention to and contribute to the most is the Seiko Citizen Watch Forum because they got folks that have been doing this for much, much longer than I have. And I learn from them every day. And a lot of the watch restorers are on that forum. 
In fact, that's how I met uh, Simon Wilkinson out in the UK is he's a contributor to that forum. And so you get really, really detailed, intricate answers to questions and people post pictures of subtle variations and whether something's real or not. So you learn a lot. You spend some time on that and you get to figure out what you like and what you don't like and what you want to pursue. And that makes sense. And there's also a lot of literature out there by the big watch blogs like Houdinki's put out a whole uh, a large write-up on Seiko chronographs. Uh, and you know, some of the other uh, magazines, the large watch magazines like Watch Time, uh, not long ago uh, this year, posted another article on Seiko chronographs because they are you know, so popular and becoming so collectible. And, and because of that, what you find is that the good examples are getting harder and harder to find and just the kind of the bad, the junky ones are, uh, are what you see more of. So it's getting harder to find you know, the good examples that are, that are good to be restored. So you mentioned briefly then about the issue with the the jewels. Now this is, I know from my interview with Spencer Klein that this is less of a repair, but this is almost like a preventative maintenance that the repair guys are doing to these movements that are modifying them. Can you just explain a bit about that for people that aren't aware of that? Absolutely. So the, you know, these are mechanical contraptions and, <laughs> And what it showed, what over time what happened, it became um, evident that uh, what Seiko did do is they didn't put jewels in the in the arbor shaft, which is where the mainspring wraps around. So you have two plates that go on either end of that, like a sandwich. And those plates, instead of having jewels in them, have a, like a brass bushing or some sort of bushing. And the problem is that over time they get ovaled out. So these, you know, because of all the tension in the mainspring, so these arbors are, you know, like pushing and, and ovaling them out over time. And so you get filings in the watch and then uh, the watch doesn't perform as well as it should uh, because the mainspring's not stable. And so what the, these restorers are, are doing, Spencer Klein is an excellent example of that, is they're putting jewels in place. This is what Seiko should have done, but for probably cost-saving reasons and maybe other things, they didn't do it. And it's pretty much the only weakness in the watch in 6139s uh, especially uh, once you jewel those those arbor ports that watch other than like any mechanical watch you have to have it service but that watch will run forever these watch restorers are, are, are jeweling them so all of my restorations i have several from spencer klein uh, from vintage time australia and the ones from simon they all i have them all put the jewels in it's only uh, let's say about $80 to jewel the, the, the plates between the uh, mainspring and it's worth it. So I think the two remaining questions, we've briefly talked about this, but with the each Basel world, well, or at least certainly the last three, Seiko have been recreating basically their greatest hits album. So we had the uh, 62 MAS, we had the, the 1969 mono block watch, and then we had the, the original Turtle. Do you think that they would even consider doing one of these original chronographs? Wouldn't it be awesome if they were to bring back the Pogue? Seiko sometimes misses, uh, let's say a lot of times, misses the mark, I think, when they bring back their, let's say, a heritage piece. Uh, sometimes they do really good work. I think the 62 MAS was done well. Uh, very expensive, of course, but, but done well. But the problem is, is that for the divers, which are, of course, hugely popular, uh, they can use, they meaning Seiko, can use current, uh, automatic mechanical movements that they have and uh, they can use anything going from the 
uh, with the 4R, 6R movements all the way up to a spring drive. Uh, and that would work great. And you, so you can do this whole reissue across this um, you know, continuum of your mechanical movements, but they don't make any mechanical chronograph movements anymore and haven't since uh, I believe, you know, the last, uh, you know, 6139 was built in the 78 timeframe. So they would have to bring back that movement very similar to, it almost have to do what Omega's done, right? With uh, bringing back the original Lamagna movement that was in the yeah. Speedmaster. Um, and who knows how much that cost Omega to do that. But if Seiko were to do that, and they could certainly do it, they have the means to do so, uh, that would be the key. And so that would be awesome if they were to actually bring back that uh, you know, 6139 movement and then put it in a watch and keep it true to its heritage. Yeah, and I'm sure if they did, they'd probably take a, a leaf out of uh, Omega's book with the uh, the 321 movement where they put it in a, a platinum-cased watch, so it's going to take it into a price bracket that I think is eye-watering even to the, the most well-off collectors. One of the last questions here is, is this a holy grail for you of Seiko chronographs? Is there one that is extremely rare or one that's extremely important that's very hard to get hold of? That's a great question, of course. Uh, and it, it, there's a couple answers to that. So I'm still searching for my, my blue bullhead <laughs> since I didn't end up getting one. Uh, and I have, a, I have a brown one from, that Spencer Klein redid, which I love. Uh, so I'd have both those bullheads. But in terms of like a 6139, uh, silver dials are, are what's super, super hot now. But the problem is, and Spencer Klein did a video on this, is that the silver dials are being, the aftermarket ones are being built, uh, being produced, and they're very good, and they're very easy to deceive. And so, because there is so much profit in, let's say, taking an old 6139 and, and faking it to be a silver dial one, because uh, really good examples, uh, the Time Teller uh, has one that he got, uh, I guess, about six months ago or so. It's a, I think it's a resist dialed one, which makes it more rare. And my guess, he got it from a reputable restorer. My guess is that's a $2,500 watch right off. Now it may be more, who knows. Uh, and so I'd love to get a silver dialed Pogue, a silver, silver dialed 6139, but just weeding through the morass of trying to find a good example to restore. I just haven't been successful. And when I bid on some, they've gone way too high for what I'm comfortable in bidding, of course, looking back, I probably should have kept going just because it would be the way values and prices are going, it would probably be good. But a silver dialed uh, 6139 is one of my one of my grails. And I suppose $2,500 is it's a, it's a lot of money for, for most uh, watch collectors, but it's not even the, the ticket to entry to one of the, the luxury brands. So I still think that's quite cool that these are a sought-after watches, highly collectible. They've got a great following and, and a support community there. But your actual entry in there, you, know, you can sort of ticket for entry, you know, the two to three hundred dollar mark to get yourself started off with them, which is still pretty pretty cool, especially for true you know horology fans like us. Right, because you're really buying into some important horology. And uh, you're getting something that's very high quality and something that will last a long time. I'm you know looking in the future. I'd like to uh, get, for example, an Omega Mark II. Those, you, you know, vintage ones, you know, you're, you're starting at 
what, $2,500, maybe yeah. around there, depending on condition, a flight master and Omega flight master. I love those. And when you look at the prices, uh, you're already, like you said, you're putting out $25 or $3,000. Uh, depending again on on some of these uh, vintage omegas, so the price of the Seikos in comparison is is very reasonable. You're absolutely right. That's one reason I really like them because I can I can buy a couple per year or so or so you know a reasonable number of them and and I basically you know put together something that would cost me you know a nice omega. This has been an absolutely fascinating uh, topic. So thanks for uh, taking your time there. So guys, there was a. a, a end of episode three fascinating podcast all about uh, Seiko chronographs and um, let us know in the in the comments section down below whether you're listening to this on iTunes or one of the other um, podcasting service providers we'd be really interested to know what you think just want to say a big thanks to uh, Todd for joining me today thank you Sam very much as always guys thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on casual watch talk thanks guys bye